I pray to Jesus, I pray to Buddha, I pray to Moses, everybody. You let me come home from the concentration camp. Couldn't you give me some guts to show that guy we Jews can fight? He saved my life. I owe my life to him. I would have just perished in that prison camp and admit to Ted. Ted was born in 1929 in Hungary. He spent 14 months in a concentration camp, which was liberated by the United States Army, inspired by the work of the United States. Dan Cohen joins us today from Los Angeles, filmmaker and author. His recent book, Single-Handed, is a deeply vivid account of the life of Medal of Honor recipient Tibor Teddy Rubin. Valuable work you're doing, young man, speaking the voice of the people. I believe it. What's that guy yakking about? Something's going on. Tibor's life story was largely untold for 50 years after the Korean War. As you've heard me say many times on this show, a story not told is a story not heard. After talking with Dan Cohen today, you'll understand why not knowing this story has been a tragedy for all of us. But now, thanks to Dan, Tibor's story is being told in full detail preserved, and generously shared in the book, Single-Handed. When Tibor Rubin was 13 in Hungary, the Nazis sent him to Mauthausen, concentration camp, where he endured, or barely survived is a better way to put it, 14 months of starvation and hard labor. Eventually, Mauthausen was liberated by the U.S. Army, and after a few years, Teddy came to the U.S., ever grateful to a nation that saved his life, and to show his gratitude, he joined the U.S. Army. When war broke out in Korea, Tibor was told that he didn't have to go with his unit. After all, he wasn't a U.S. citizen. Instead, Teddy volunteered to go. He wanted to stay with his comrades and to help repay a debt of gratitude towards the Army for rescuing him at Mauthausen. While in Korea, Dan Cohen writes, an anti-Semitic master sergeant assigned Private Rubin to more than his share of hazardous duty Tibor accepted without complaint, and when he was left alone on a hill to guard an important ammunition dump, single-handedly, he defended it against hundreds of marauding North Koreans. Dan continues the story. A few weeks later, Teddy defied orders so that he could rescue a fellow GI who had been left for dead on the battlefield. When a machine gun crew went down in heavy fire, he writes, Tibor took over and held off a wave of enemy soldiers, Later, after his battalion was decimated in what is now known as the Little Bighorn of Korea, Tibor was captured and sent to a Chinese-run prison camp. During the coldest winter in a century along the Yalu River, when many POWs were perishing, Tibor used the skills he'd acquired in Mauthausen to steal food for his starving buddies and to treat the sick and wounded among them. When the Chinese offered to free him if he would repatriate, to his native communist Hungary, Tibor chose to stay with and care for his fellow soldiers. After the Korean War, Tibor Rubin lived in relative obscurity. His story remained little known for decades, until a handful of his army buddies, who once believed that he had perished in Korea, mounted a passionate campaign to see that he was honored for his countless acts of heroism. Official recognition took 25 years, and literally an act of Congress. In 2005, at the age of 76, Tibor Rubin received our nation's highest military distinction for valor, the Medal of Honor. Welcome to episode 18 of Veteran Voices, the podcast. Well, welcome, Dan Cohen. It is a real pleasure to have you on today to talk about your book, Single-Handed, which is about Tibor Teddy Rubin, a Holocaust survivor and uh, the only Medal of Honor recipient who was a concentration camp survivor. Well, thank you for inviting me, Kevin. I appreciate it, and I have a deep respect and regard for veterans. Dan, what I tell people often is that a story not told is a story not heard. So, What is implied in that is that the storyteller is a very important part of the story. And so here we have a story of a World War II 
survivor and then a Korean War survivor. And that story is certainly there. And, and we will talk about that story today. But you are the storyteller. And I think I don't want this moment to pass without recognizing you as the storyteller. And if you could tell us why you felt compelled to tell this story. Well, I think the way you do. And in this particular case, well, I'm a filmmaker and an essayist. And in this particular case, I was introduced to a remarkable individual with a history and story unlike any other. And my objective from the beginning, after I made the decision to attempt to write the story, was literally to do exactly what you said. That is, to make sure the story was told and it was distributed and it was sent out into the world so that people from now until whenever, who had any interest at all, would know how remarkable, unusual, and completely unique among a group of people who are entirely unique, that is, Medal of Honor recipients, and also Silver Star recipients, and so forth, uh, they would, people would see who this man was and begin to understand what he is and his contribution. Mm -hmm. He said on a, a recent uh, interview with uh, James Rosen on Fox News, he didn't have that sort of sensibility to tell his own story. And I find that true with a lot of veterans. They are very humble. Uh, you know, some people just aren't storytellers. So did you feel, when you came across this story, did you feel like that is a story that I can tell, that I bring, uh, I, I can bring a certain um, ability to, to share this story with the public? Did you have that sense about you? Well, a couple of thoughts. First of all, it was, when I started, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it successfully. But the objective, after I met him, I... I I am not a person who is an expert on war, nor am I a historian. Uh, I've had experience as a journalist, but the man was so impressive. And he was a great teller of anecdotes. But the issue is, and always is, I think, when it comes to long form, we maybe we've heard that he was a Medal of Honor winner. Maybe we've heard that somebody was a hero in one regard or another. But what is the entire narrative of that person's life? What's the trajectory? What is the beginning, middle, and in many cases, the end? And people know, some people know, who he is in terms of his, his achievements, just the, the fragments. But the story in its entirety was so immense and so magnificent that it, in a weird way, it was a challenge to me to see if I could make a coherent narrative and more than that, make it a compelling narrative so that when you started to read it, you wouldn't be able to put it down. And basically, that was my objective. I wanted it to read in a weird way, in some level, like a movie, because I love movies. But, you know, books are so entirely different. I wanted also to gather all the people and keyboard central personality and put them into a context. Mm -hmm. Well, I ask these questions because a lot of people approach us and they say, oh, you know, uh, there's someone in my life that has an amazing experience. Their story needs to be told. I'd love to tell that story. But, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, people are very daunted. They don't think they could take on the, the task of telling someone's story. And, I, and I'm referring to people who have grandparents and Parents and, uh, you know, relatives who just, they know these stories, but they want to tell the story, but they feel like they just can't. And so you, you know, you said, hey, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, try to tell this story. And I think that's a sort of a, a profile on courage, if you will, in terms of, uh, you know, you know, you see a story that needs to be told and you, you jumped in, in there and you did it. Um, one quick bit of advice from you for our listeners before we talk about uh, Tibor's life. What would you say to someone who says, oh, there's a story in my family that I would like to tell, uh, but I'm not a professional writer? What would you say to someone like that? Well, let me step back a ways to my education. I have done a lot of reading and a lot of writing of different sorts. And I think a lot of people probably know somebody who is like that and that could tell that story if they can't. And it might be a good idea for them to try and find that person, see if they can help, even if it's just to write a short piece. One of my key witnesses in this 
Harry Brown, is, as it turned out, a very good writer and a good reader and was capable of writing his own stories, which appeared in, in local newspapers in it, where he lives. This That's a difficult question. And, and as I said earlier, I just took a chance on myself and uh, devoted what amounted to the better part of three years to both spending time with Tibor, Teddy, and running down other people, which was really an enjoyable experience, uh, who were still alive, who could help, who could contribute to the story. And then the remainder of that time writing it and then trying to find a publisher who would be interested in putting it out there. So it's a mess of stuff. You have to be a little crazy to do it. But um, I've never shied away from crazy things. I'm a filmmaker. I've made independent movies. So that's one of the nuttiest and dopiest things anybody can devote their time to. So this, by comparison, seemed uh, modest on some level. (laughs) Well, tell us a little bit about Mr. Rubin. I was introduced to Teddy in in 2011. And uh, a rabbi who had... um, invited him to speak at his congregation, invited me down to meet him in Garden Grove, fortunately, 45 minutes from my home. And when I encountered him, he was 5'7", balding, wrinkled, 80, and shaped like a pumpkin. And he had a laugh like a kind of demented crow. (laughs) And the first half hour, he regaled us with stories that were hilarious. And they did not address his heroism. They addressed the, the humorous and crazy things that occurred to him in Korea and, and afterwards. And I thought to myself, and I then read about him. I, I'd heard the, the basics. A lot of people had heard the things, some of the things he'd accomplished, the, the acts of daring. I just, when I looked at this guy, I said, I just don't see a hero here. I can't believe this guy did all the things that are written about him. And on top of that, he was quite modest, and he had a thick Hungarian accent. It was completely incongruous. If you, if you looked in the paper and said, uh, you looked at the Medal of Honor citation, you said, wait a second, there's a disconnect between what I'm reading and the individual who's sitting in front of me who almost disappears, sinks into a sofa, as I said, like a kind of talking pumpkin. And over the course of a few weeks, I came back again and again, and uh, and there was no doubt he was who he said he was. But then I read a, a, a portfolio of lengthy letters written by his former comrades in arms, guys he had fought with, guys he had served with, and also POWs with whom he had been incarcerated in Korea in Camp 5 for well over two and a half years. And those letters clinched it. They were first-person narratives they, they witnessed his incredible feats of valor, and I then could not turn away from it. That really clinched it for me. There was no way. These stories were written in blood and tears, as I often say. At the juncture or the point in time when I met him, he wasn't in failing health, but his, he was in his early, he was 80 or 81, and he had been wounded so many times and had suffered the consequences of the wounds that I thought, if I don't get this story now, I may never get it. And I was quite fortunate in being able to spend about a year and a half chatting with him before his health took a turn for the worse and he would have, he would have been unable to tell his story as well as he did for that period of time. And when you first started to talk with Mr. Rubin about his experiences, did you show up with a camera, recorder, uh, notepad? Was he open and receptive to this? Teddy had gone around. He had been speaking for about, uh, since 2005, I think he was flown all over the country to talk to people. And Teddy's uh, method is anecdotal, comic. He, He has a great respect for the guys that he served with, and he was more as just as likely to tell their story as his, and uh, a terrific uh, comic in a weird way. And for me, I just came in with a digital recorder and a notebook, and Teddy would say, "Oh, ask me anything." And we danced around a lot of subjects that I think were uncomfortable for him, for him, mainly having to do with things that occurred during World War II when he was a child, the Nazis 
his things about his family that were quite sad and, and tragic. But it was conversation. They weren't interviews per se. We were like, after a while, two guys talking about stuff, one of whom was trying to get information from the other in as uh, delicate and as, um, as subtle a fashion as possible because he had a kind of routine that he'd been used to, to following, and that is his version of events, the way he discussed them in you know, speaking engagements. Mm-hmm. So that was the process, and it was really great because ultimately it yielded a tremendous amount of personal information. So over time, that routine, the shtick, if you will, sort of dropped away and things became more personable and uh, in- interpersonal, I guess I should say, and uh, things opened up for you? Yes. Yes. I would say it took about a year for him to really get down to the for – from. I, I would just circle around things and come back to him when I think he thought he was receptive. And that yielded information about his life during, uh, you know, when he was a child and when he was captured by the Nazis and the things that occurred that helped me to make sense of his entire, the the trajectory, how he gained the enormous strength to do what he did as a young adult in Korea and in the prison camp. So that all of that was it, it was an enormous experience. And then, of course, there were a dozen other people who came out of the woodwork who contributed their stories about him and their stories about themselves, all of all of which are part of the book. And you have many hours of recordings with Tibor. You have many hours of phone interviews with, with other people, other witnesses, right? Exactly. I know from, you know, putting things together that so much just is left out of the final cut. Sure. Where will all of these other stories go? Well, they're sitting on my computer drive. I've got them duplicated. I think totally, I've probably got about 80 hours or 100 hours. I'm trying to think. I've never really thought in regards to the length. What I do over the phone, this is just my process. While I'm talking to somebody, I'm also usually typing so that I know the, the highlights of what they say. And I'll give you an example. After the concentration camp episode and some of Teddy's family survived miraculously and some did not. He and his brother and sister ended up in a DP camp, a camp for displaced persons, where they spent about three years before they were uh, permitted to come to the U.S. And Teddy put me in touch with a woman who's still alive at the time, she's passed since, who his brother had been engaged to. Beautiful, gorgeous young woman at that time and who is now living in Hartford, Connecticut, who also was a very close friend of the family, reunited with the family in the U.S. This woman was able to provide details about the life of displaced persons and and about what Teddy was like at the age of 15 that he would never have told me. This aided the book enormously, enormously in the latter, especially in the latter aspect, because when he came back from Korea, this woman was the best friend of his sister and lived in the same community. So she saw him firsthand and she could really give me information that I could have never gotten that on my own. As you were conducting the interviews or conversations, as you you put them, I like that word much better, conversation. Did you get a sense that um, you were getting the deep story here? Uh, In other words, did you have any sense that there were some things that you weren't going to have access to or Mr. Rubin wasn't going to tell you about? Well, in the beginning, I didn't know, you know, you wade into this guy's life and here's a life of, of 80 years and you don't know what you're going to find. You know, you know about the heroics. You, you understood that I understood that he had defended a hill single-handedly from hundreds of North Koreans. I understood that he had escaped from a prison camp numerous times just to steal food for his buddies I understood a lot of the resistance uh, to the communist indoctrination that he kind of sloughed off kind of humorously. And what a funny guy, amusing individual he was. But over a period of time, this woman and several others who knew him were able to give me information that I could come back to him with. I could say, what was this like? You know, stuff out of the blue. And he could help fill in the blanks. But without the others, and there were a handful of them, I don't know that I would have gotten nearly as rich a uh, character study 
as I think the book turns out to be. Mm-hmm. It would have nearly as the depth wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't have understood anything about him, which I never intended. I never intended on understanding him when I started. I just wanted to write a coherent narrative, and it turned out I was given a tremendous window into an individual's complicated psyche, if if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, I ask this question because some of the things that uh, we face in our work here and, and getting the stories of, from veterans in their own words is that time is a limited thing, of course. Uh, we don't have you know these other resources to triangulate, if you will, the information. Uh, but then there's this thing that you know I, I just think sometimes people will not share a part of their story for whatever, whatever reason. And certainly, you know, we have to respect that. But I'm just curious if, if you had run into some of that sort of reservedness, uh, some stories that will, just will not be told, and if you had a sense of those and uh, how you handled those and, and so forth. But it sounds like you, you really flushed out the, the, the real depth and the truth of, of the narrative here. Well, I think uh, that's a good question. I think that's always a writer's problem, and it, you're a detective on some level, but you have to be careful. People are entitled to their privacy. In this particular case, and I can't speak to any others because I've never written a book before, things came to me that I never would have anticipated, and it was so rich. And I think Teddy, at the age of 81, had, at least in his mind, he believed that he was willing to talk as much and as candidly as possible. And of course, we're talking about things that are, some of which occurred 60, 70 years ago. The other people really made the difference. I have to say that Daisy Pollock, who just passed, she passed while I was writing the final draft, was an enormous collaborator. I could call her and say, well, you tell me about what happened when, and then throw out a series of circumstances. Because when he came back from Korea, and this is what makes, I think, one of the things that makes the story compelling, and I think it probably is something that uh, obtains to many of the people you talk to, and veterans especially. Teddy never mentioned a word about his extraordinary heroics for 30 years to anybody. Wow. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. This story, the things he had done in the prison camp, the things he'd done on, li- on the line, none, not a single word of it. Family didn't know. Wife didn't know. Nobody knew. And when it started to come out, and this is, we're talking about 1980, he went to a POW convention and met up with one of his former buddies who thought he'd been killed. And the buddy said, where's your medal? Teddy's response was, what medal? Then this guy got together with a number of others, and they mounted the campaign to see that he got the medal. And that campaign alone was 25 years. Wow. So you see what was the sort of epic story we're talking about here. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, um, well, it's sort of a, a b- bigger question. Maybe we could put it in another place. Oh, why you think he didn't talk about it? Oh, I advance a theory in the book. I think it had much to do with the way he was brought up. It had much to do with the imprint that his father made on him before he was able to defend that imprint. And one of the things, I think he had a beautiful upbringing, and he would think back on it and, tell, and talk to you about how wonderful his life was, family life was. But Teddy's particular case, a strict regimen of Jewish education was foisted on him at a very early age, as it is for most young Jews at the time. And Teddy, unlike some, resisted it. He was much more interested in American movies and running around in the woods and going to Hebrew classes and learning about Judaism. And as a result, his performance as a child, as a young child, was pretty poor. And his father impressed upon him that he was a nothing, that he would be a failure when he grew up, and that he would be uh, probably be a disgrace to the Jewish community in that he would not be scholarly, learned, or respectful of traditions. And there was always that voice, that voice from his father, uh, deep and the rabbis in the community, deep within him. And he used to refer to himself as Mr. Schmuck, a little schmuck, just a, an ordinary, you know, an ordinary guy and nobody. And I believe that when he came back from Korea, everything that he did, all these amazing things were just 
he never thought they were extraordinary. He just think, thought those were the things you had to do and that he was not extraordinary. And it took other people. And basically, it took a tremendous amount of hectoring on the part of his former comrades to get him out of that shell that he lived in. Mm-hmm. Do you think in part, um, and, and I'm speaking again from experience here with our project here, that some of his uh, not telling the story could be attributed to people just not asking? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. I think the evidence suggests exactly the opposite in, in this case. And I can, I can quickly go through that. It's a, it's a major part of the story. In 1953, Teddy was returned before the war was over as a gesture between the Red Cross had, had um, basically organized something called Little Switch, where 100 uh, ailing GIs were returned in exchange for, I think, 600 North Korean and Chinese. You know, we see these things, these prisoner exchanges in the course of wars. They've occurred quite recently. You know, there there are several cases of this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. When Teddy was repatriated in April of 53, and he he came across from Panmunjom, these guys came across in stretches. He was one of the very first because he was very ill at the time. And he started talking to people. They heard this accent deep Hungarian accent and the screwed up syntax that he'd never let go of. And they said, what were you doing in our army? Then it quickly became apparent that he had also been a prisoner of the Nazis. And that was a big story. 13 years old, he's a prisoner of the Nazis for a year in, in a concentration camp. And then a few years later, in his early 20s, he spends two and a half years in a, Korea, a Chinese prison camp. So his story was carried by the AP. There were photographs and stories in newspapers about him all over the country. And he would talk, they said, well, what's the difference between being a prisoner of the Nazis and prisoner of the Chinese? And he said, oh, well, the Chinese were a hundred times nicer. Mm. You know, he would joke about it. He said, the Germans said, told you they were going to kill you. The Chinese just wanted to turn you into a communist, and which was to a large extent true. He said they treated us, it was rough, but they treated us a hundred times better. And he used to sometimes, he said to, a fellow soldier that when, when asked that it was a piece of cake by comparison, which of course it was not. Right. So he had ample opportunity to then go on and talk about many of the things that occurred, but he did not, nor did he with his family and Daisy Pollock, who was his sister's best friend and lived uh, right around the corner from them for what amounted to 20 or 30 years, uh, was able to uh, extrapolate on that. He was asked numerous times. He'd say, oh, you know, Stuff happened, little things, but and they respected that finally. So that's, that's does that give you the picture? Do you, does that paint a picture of what your question was designed to 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 look into? Oh, certainly, certainly. I just find this very fascinating. I mean, what, I know. I mean, we know obviously, you know, from your book and and this story that you know really came out since two thousand five when he was awarded the Medal of Honor. But boy, I mean, why did this not splash everywhere prior to this? It's just amazing. I know to me. it's astonishing, isn't it? Yes, it's astonishing. But basically, here we had this little Jew, which he would refer to himself that way. He was placed in an environment that was, to some extent, hostile to Jews. He had, a, he had an anti-Semitic sergeant, and in an in an environment where his, the, all the other guys in his company, the guys he most of the guys that he hung around with were Southerners, Southern boys. They'd never met a Jew in their life. And they were ambivalent about Jews, to say the least, because of their upbringing and the experience they'd had with organizations like the Klan. And this guy saved their lives numerous times. And in the most amazing way imaginable, these guys, 30 years, when they found him alive and well, banded together to do what he could not do for himself at the time, and that is speak to his great heroism. And these guys, along with several other service organizations, clinched the Medal of Honor. That made the story so extraordinary and so unique. It was so unlike any other story. Let's return now to our conversation with Dan Cohen, and talk more about the amazing story of Medal of Honor recipient Tibor Teddy Rubin. It is a deeply human story, I think. And 
Okay, so there's the military part of the story. You know, the the combat heroism, you know, uh, remaining on the hill by himself for 24 hours, holding back, you know, the, the, the Korean forces coming at them. There's that story, of course, and that's a big part of it's that's recognized in the proclamation of the Medal of Honor. But then there is that what I find very, very fascinating and very, very compelling and heartwarming, you know, infinitely, how he took care of his fellow prisoners in the concentration camp in Korea. And I mean, that it goes back to his early days in the, the Nazi concentration camp, you know, what he learned there. But could you talk a little bit about that side of this story, which I just find so profound? Yeah, I do too. I, as I said, on so many levels, this was a story that was completely irresistible to me. As a, someone who, you know, had never written a book but wanted to, once I heard, I, this was the sort of thing that kept me up nights thinking about. Uh, he had learned in the concentration as a child, he had witnessed ways people survived, not by stealing to some extent, also the kind of homegrown remedies that they used for dysentery, which was sometimes unsuccessful how they got rid of lice, which were um, a, a very difficult uh, challenge in the concentration camp, largely because if the Nazis found you with lice, they executed you because the lice could lead to typhus mm -hmm. and several other illnesses. And when he was captured in the fall of 1950, it was a dire time for both UN POWs and also their captors because it was the coldest winter in 100 years. The Ch and the Chinese, when they entered the war, never anticipated accumulating. A, a, they didn't thought about what would happen when they accumulated a bunch of prisoners. So many, they were not ready for them. And the supply lines were bad. The Allies were bombing. And it, originally, it began as chaos. And then they established a series of um, POW camps along the Yellow River, a handful of them. And there were, there were no medical supplies. Very little food, even for their own guys. And Teddy rose to that challenge. Let me give you one anecdote from the book for your readers, one among many. There was a guy laying in this house, and they were stuffed into these houses like sardines. These little houses that have been appropriated from the Korean community, where they housed POWs. And there was a guy in his back. They'd seen him beaten badly by North Korean soldiers, and he had two grievous wounds, one on each shoulder. They were probably from mortar shell. They were beginning to get gangrenous, and there was no doubt that this guy would have died had they gone untreated, and yet there were no medications. Teddy jumped into a freezing latrine and sifted through fresh feces until he found maggots in the feces, and, and uh, he then rinsed in freezing water the maggots and took a rag and applied them to the man's wounds. The man was only semi-conscious. The maggots, and Teddy knew this, he was a farm boy, the maggots ate the gangrenous parts of the wound, and a day later, the wounds were fresh, and he took the maggots off and disposed of them, and the man, as a result, survived because the wounds healed it clean. This is astonishing. It, the guys around him had, couldn't believe it, didn't know what he was doing and, and didn't really care, but were astonished when a few days later this guy was sitting up talking and eating. So that's the kind of resourcefulness we're talking about, which I find, I find deeply profound and complicated. I can't imagine myself having the wherewithal and also the resources to call upon to just do this kind of thing without thinking, which he did over and over. Mm -hmm. When you mentioned the connection between lice and, and typhus, I remember in one of the documentaries, I believe it was a PBS documentary about uh, Teddy, someone who had been saved by him, it was a witness in the Korean camp, said that Teddy stayed up all night picking lice off of a fellow prisoner. And who died. He did it for numerous numerous occasions, and he would also, uh, the guys were too weak to eat, so he would either steal or take their, try and get their rations and feed them, and they were too weak to go to the latrine. He would carry or drag them there. He would clean them up when they were filthy, and he, no one ever asked him. He just did it. Right. I just find that, and, and in many cases, a couple of the letters, one of which runs, I think it's 21 single-spaced uh, pages detail 
the, these attempts to keep as many guys alive as, as he could and often failed. But I can't, I just find that inconceivable. I mean, there were, by the way, there were other, many other heroes, and they are, a handful of them were covered in the book. The, the great, and um, they're trying to get this guy sainted, the, um, the chaplain, Emile Capon, who also performed miracles under the most dire of circumstances. So again, th- these are just some examples of some of the things that occur in the story. Mm-hmm. Without that background, uh, you know, his early life in the concentration camps with the Nazis. He, he knew a lot of stuff because he was a country boy and he knew about that you could make dandelion tea and stuff like that. I mean, he was he was resourceful and he also was uh, was a thief at a young age because when he escaped, he was escaping from the Nazis. They walked from he and seven other he was a kid and seven uh, refugees, Polish refugees walked from. Uh, Pashto, which was outside of uh, about a couple hours from Budapest, all the way to Italy, where they were captured, he would raid farms at night and steal from the sheds, uh, and 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 in order to feed these guys, uh, and they were also pretty resourceful. He he had it in him. Yeah. There was something about him. You mentioned early in the book, you know, how enterprising he was when he was a young boy. His He wanted to go see the movies, and his father forbade him, made him stay in and, uh, you know, study on Saturday nights. And so his his mother suggested, hey, be a courier. And so he made some pocket money and did oh, yeah. whatever he wanted to with his own, uh, you know, through his own resourcefulness. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, oh, yeah. He was so cool. He was so – he didn't think much of Hebrew school – he liked to hang around the woods, and he adored American movies. And there was a, one little theater in the town, or probably one big theater, because movies were the, the primary form of uh, popular entertainment. And he would steal away uh, from the house, and he'd made a little money here and there, pocket change, delivering uh, everything from uh, shoes from his father's shops to wedding gifts to announcements, because postage was more expensive than you know a 10-year-old or a 9-year-old on foot, and the people would tip him a couple of coins and they added up and he had a pocket full of coins and that got him into the movies or he would take tickets for his uncle who who ran the theater and he would be admitted free he was always somebody who was resourceful <laughs> you've mentioned in previous interviews that uh, you know Teddy's life has been in three acts you know the first part the childhood in the camps and then his army era and then there was after that which as that long 50 years before he was recognized with the medal. And your book covers all of this, but Teddy is still alive. What can you tell us about this phase in his life? What is he up to now? Well, up until about a year ago, when he suffered a decline in health, he, until I think he was 81 or so, or 82, he uh, enjoyed playing Santa Claus in the community. During the holidays, he spent a lot of time at the VA. He'd gather up lots of small gifts for guys. He spent, he and his sister, who, before she passed away, and another member of the family, were devoted to socializing with veterans who were, who were far from home. They were injured. They were in rehab. Uh, that's what he really liked to do with his time, from the time he got back from the service. Actually, in the mid-50s, he had a very high regard for fellow soldiers. I think, actually, that's, that service aspect of his life occurred after he was married and had kids. And actually, uh, it sort of peaked, again, long before he got the medal, after his children grew up and he had fewer responsibilities. He and his sister were devoted to spending time with Vietnam vets. And later, uh, vets from the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. How is he received now that he's a Medal of Honor recipient? Well, in his community, he's the greatest hero. <laughs> uh, they named a library after him, and people couldn't do enough for him. Of course, Teddy just, I think he did what he did. He did participate in the medal campaign. He was browbeat by his fellow soldiers and these guys who gathered around him, and finally a couple of service organizations uh, in particular, the Jewish war veterans, he took a very active role in talking about his life and his background. Then he enjoyed telling the funny stories, the things that happened that were quite humorous that I was glad to 
to gather and, and you know, write in a narrative form for the book. Mm-hmm. So he kept himself busy. Mm-hmm. There's always service to be done if you want to do it. That's one of the lessons I learned from him. He still lives near you? About 45 minutes away. He's really not well now. His health is uh, guarded, and he can't do what he used to do. You know, his, his leg acted up. He went around on crutches. But he played Santa Claus, I think, for 20 years mm. <laughs> during the holidays. <laughs> he really got a kick out of putting on a costume and going around the neighborhood to the kids. He, he just was a guy full of mirth uh, and uh, goodwill and humor. And, and just a, a great schmoozer, talker, lively. It's the, the sort of person that I can't, I don't think I've ever run across anybody who didn't like him. Not that <laughs> that was my you know, objective. I never found anybody that talked to anybody that didn't say great or funny things about him. Quite a jokester for a long time and a real ladies' man before he got married. He was quite handsome. A dead ringer for um, John Garfield when he was uh, in his 20s. The, the, old, uh, the actor who died in the, uh, I think he died in the late 40s or early 50s. But Teddy was a dead ringer for him. And how did he receive the book? The book came out earlier this year. It came out in May. And I've got myself a handful of copies around that time. And Teddy had suffered for the last year from some level of dementia. And there was a, I'd visited him a couple of times. He always recognized me. He was happy to see me. But I never had a book in my hand. And when I finally brought a few books over, I opened them up and I showed him the photos. There are lots of photos. I think about 40 of them of him at various stages in his life. Some of them are kind of rare family shots and stuff like that. And he looked at them and he didn't comment. And when I got done and closed it and I handed it to him, he looked at me just as quick as can be and said, what do I owe you? (laughs) 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 I never anticipated that. That's the sort of guy he was. <laughs> and your response? I just laughed. He got me. He zinged me about a hundred times over a period of three or four years. I'll tell you another funny one he, that came out automatically. When I was just getting to know him, it was close to the Jewish holidays. It was October, I think, of 2011. And we were, about, we were facing the new year. And I knew that from reading about him and his background and a couple of chats we'd had, that he was kind of ambivalent to, to ceremony. And that while he attended synagogue, it was usually only because somebody kind of pushed him into it or he was speaking after the services. And so I was half kidding, but half serious. One afternoon, I said, well, you know, Teddy, the, the Jewish New Year's coming up. You're going go to you're gonna go to services. And just like quicker than I could ever imagine, he looked at me, his blue eyes, and he said, oh, oh no, God said I didn't have to go. He already heard that story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I wrote that down. Like I right away, I wrote that down, and I'd hear him on the phone from time to time. He's a great jokester, always a good humor, always a good humor, extraordinary. And I'm sure that was helpful throughout his entire life. His humor, and absolutely, his attitude. absolutely. He used to say to the communist Chinese, and during the indoctrinations, that he said, "You can't." He tell the commandants, he said. Geez, guys, you, you know, you can't brainwash me because I don't got a brain to wash. <laughs> He'd say, I'm too stupid. I, can't, I don't understand it. Amazing. Yeah, it is. It was so remarkable. That's why, as I, as I said, and you, you asked the, the, the right question to begin with, why did you write it? I wrote it because I could not write it. It was that great a story. Mm-hmm. And you are planning a movie script. Is that right? Yeah, I'm two-thirds to a script, and then I'll see who's interested in town. That's a tough one because you can't make, I'm, I've made a few little movies in Pennsylvania, indie films, and those are always uh, shoestring affairs, but this story requires uh, the full, you know, Hollywood treatment. It, it would have to be a movie of, of some, uh, either that or a miniseries uh, that covers a lot of ground and a lot of material. I think it can be done in two hours and 10 minutes, it's quite doable. Uh, if it's handled properly, it'll also be handled as a, a miniseries. But I don't make those sorts of decisions. I'm simply a writer. How do you think the story would have to change going from book form to movie form? 
Well, movies are so different. I mean, every medium is different. I, I just started speaking, uh, my first public speaking about this thing, and even that is an entirely different m- mode of communication. I mean, books are but words, and movies are pictures with uh, small amounts of dialogue, and they are, they're structured differently. I wrote the book chronological form. I started when he was a kid and went until right up to current day. I think the movie would have to start sort of in the middle and maybe there would be flashbacks to things that occurred that impacted his behavior uh, as a child. But there, there's a, you know, you're talking about a skeleton versus a full body. A movie script is basically, uh, and it, it's a piece of architecture that points to how a story would be told in images. And a book is all about words and in some cases augmented by photos. So they're just so entirely different. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them can, I guess my book could be read in 10 or 15 hours. A movie flashes by your, you know, you sit there for a couple hours and then you, you go out and eat or drink or chat about it. It's very, very different, mm-hmm. completely different medium, but it's also quite powerful because it's nothing quite as powerful as the sound and fury of what we see on a screen. I mean, look at, the great war movies of the past dozen or so years, they communicate vast amounts of information in in, in moments. You know, Private Ryan, uh, this recent thing, Fury with um, Brad Pitt. They are, these are powerful pieces of storytelling that are, are over in in relatively short period of time. So just a very different medium. And the trade-off from the depth and uh, richness of of print to the uh, you know the visual splash and the uh, dissemination uh, you know with film, I mean, boy, I mean, you just on some level you just couldn't ask for anything more for this story to be broadcast so widely around the world, uh, you know, through the medium of film. Well, the great thing about books is that you know if they're done well, you're you are a participant. Re- reading is active and. They're both impressionistic mediums because if I were to tell Tibor's entire story, the book would have been a thousand pages. As it is, it's 400, and it includes stories of a handful of other people who are truly extraordinary in their own right. Uh, not to take anything away from them, every single character, I think that I spent some time with, I could have written a book about there, or somebody could have. Um, but movies can do incredible things because. There are moments that move. There, there can be indelible moments. I mean, think about the end of Private Ryan, where, where Tom Hanks dies after all this, or, or Fury, where Brad Pitt sacrifices himself, and even not things that aren't, aren't as um, obvious as that in these these movies. The really good ones. They are extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. So I look forward to the possibility that a script on, on Teddy's life becomes, uh, you know, a, a movie. Uh, I look forward to that as well. So what's next for you, Dan? Well, the script, uh, I'd like to make another low-budget movie, probably a comedy. I'd like to direct another one. I'm toying with a couple of ideas for books, uh, but really I've been kept pretty busy with the writing of this script, the handling of the promotion for the book, and then... Uh, other projects that have been sitting around gathering dust for three years while I wrote this one. There's always something to do for writers if a writer feels like sitting down and, and typing. There's, there's always something for us. We're, all, we're, we're big mouths. You know, we, <laughs> we, we really are. We've got to tell a story. <laughs> well, God bless you for doing that, for telling the stories. Because as I said earlier, a story not told is a story not heard. And it's just so important for us to get these stories preserved and you know that's the first part of it and then getting them out there promoting them getting them before the public you know we like to refer to ourselves as public historians you know there's a lot of history out there a lot of people doing history a lot of academics scholarly people things in museums that don't see necessarily see the light of day so mm-hmm. and, and our take is that uh, you know we preserve the stories but we also want to share the stories through Whichever way we can, through different media, you know, we do that. And as as you are doing this through the book and hopefully a movie next, because the stories just have to be out there and they have to be told and taken up by people and talked about and and learned from eventually. I mean, that's really the end of the end. We have to learn from these stories because they enrich our humanity at the end of the day, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not, I try and tell people, people think, oh, a lot of people think, well, you know, there are people that that gravitate towards uh, war stories, history, 
POWs, but the vast majority of the public, oh my gosh, a war story. This, but this is a story about a character, about an enormous character, and they're all ultimately about characters. And let me let me just uh, change the subject for just a second and and urge your listeners. Uh, I don't tell people to go out and buy books, but I do urge them to call their public library and request or demand that the library get the book in so people can read it for free. Because books, you know, there's no, there's no owning any work of art or, you know, or, or a book, but there is the reading of it and the possessing of it. And so the great thing about libraries is one book can be read by 30 or 40 or 50 people. And that, I think, is very important. Mm-hmm. It's important that the book be out there for, for, for the general public. Well, that's an incredible gesture on your part to to uh, get that book out there in in the public's hands, you know, through our public library system and uh, you know other library systems. That's uh, that's amazing. There's a great cover, and it, the cover tells is quite enticing. And I think uh, that pe- people have read the book to say to me once they picked it up, they couldn't put it down, and that's the objective. And that is going to tell the story better than I could chatting. Yes. I'll put the website in our show notes so people can access your website and they can find out where to get the book and read more about it. Yeah, and just get get on the horn and get those librarians. They they they, they make they they direct a good piece of the puzzle. They can really get the book and put it on those shelves, and then anybody, teenagers, adults, vets, anybody, people should be able to read books for free. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, Dan Cohen, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast and sharing your thoughts about the story and the process of storytelling and, you know, the, uh, the just the bigger picture here that is, uh, you know, associated with um, Teddy Rubin's story. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And we'll, we'll have to chat again. Our guest today has been Dan Cohen, author of Single-Handed, the inspiring true story of Tibor, Teddy, Rubin, Holocaust survivor, Korean War hero, and Medal of Honor recipient. Before we go, I want to say this. There's a Teddy Rubin in each of our lives. Many military heroes are walking among us. Please do not let their stories go untold. If you want to thank our veterans, listen to their stories. That's it for episode 18 of Veteran Voices, the podcast. I'm Kevin Farkas. See you next time. You're listening to Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh. You're listening to Veteran Voices. You're listening to Veteran Voices. (laughs) 